Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman, and part of his presentation, The Beginning of the Good News, a study on the Gospel of Mark, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, Beginning the Gospel, Part 1, recorded in February 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. There's a, a story, which I'm not sure if, if it's true or not, but has anyone ever heard of Oscar Wilde, the uh, Irish playwright? Yeah. Well, Oscar Wilde went to Oxford University in England, and uh, one of the things he had to study was Greek. And uh, the way they do things at Oxford is you study something, and, the, and then at the end of the term, uh, you, you go up before a board of examiners, and they, they tell you basically to show us your stuff. And uh, Oscar Wilde was given um, the New Testament, and he was told to read Mark's Gospel, start reading Mark's Gospel to show us that you know Greek. So he started reading, and he was brilliant, obviously. And after a while, the examiners decided that he had passed the exam. And so they said, okay, you can stop now. And uh, Oscar Wilde looked up and said, but I, but, but, but I want to find out how it ends. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> to which the examiner said, the guy dies. <laughs> Another little vignette, and these actually have a deep theological meaning, by the way. Another vignette. Uh, maybe some of you are not familiar with Joe Bob Briggs. Joe Bob Briggs is this sort of comic, profane, even sort of reviewer of B-movies. And he has a whole website, and he used to have, a, I think, a radio show, or even a television show at one point. But a long time ago... In a galaxy far, far away, there was a movie called The Last Temptation of Christ. It was based on um, Kazantzakis' novel about the, uh, the temptation of Jesus. And I don't, it was somewhere in the 90s when this came out. But Joe Bob reviewed it. And it's unusual for Joe Bob to review sort of a, a mainstream film. You know, it's usually sort of zombies, you know, uh, zombies in the swamp type films. But he reviewed The Last Temptation and he made a statement. He said, the problem I have with Jesus films is that I know how they end. The reason why I love this film is that I don't know what's going to happen next. And when I thought about that, and as I've always, uh, as I've read Mark's gospel, I realized that this is, in fact, the one gospel that we don't know how it ends. Any pretense we have to familiarity with the story of Jesus is exploded by Mark's gospel. And it's not because, um, because the church doesn't use it. The church does use it as a part of our lectionary cycle. But when we think of the story of Jesus, invariably, it is a composite of Matthew, Luke, and John. I mean, the, almost everything that we, that we can remember about uh, the life of Jesus in our lectionary cycle and perhaps in our devotional readings, all the big hallmarks come from the other three gospels, not from Mark. And that's, uh, there's probably a good reason for that. There's a reason why Matthew is first. <laughs> and we'll talk about that as we move through this course. But uh, scholars, modern scholars, genuinely, generally believe that Mark is the first written gospel out of the four. It was the first attempt to write down the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Luke, we know, presupposes earlier gospels. He says so. Um, 
Matthew, although he doesn't say so, if you you know, uh, opened up two you know, Word documents and created a synopsis of Matthew and Mark, you'll see why Matthew is so darn long. It's because he uses about 80 to 90% of Mark's gospel. So Mark is in Luke and Matthew's gospels. It's the fundamental basis of those gospels upon which they hang other things. Now, Mark is about 15 chapters long plus six verses, the original ending. We'll see that Mark has several endings. Uh, 16, so 15 chapters. Anyone, how long is Matthew's gospel? Does anyone know? It's more than 16, isn't it? It's like, it's like 20-something. It's 28, 28 chapters. And Luke is not that much shorter. It's 24 chapters. So Luke and Matthew had more to say than Mark, but they also thought... Mark had said something right, because otherwise they wouldn't have used him as a source. So if we are trying to understand uh, the church's uh, witness about Jesus, about the good news, we can't do better than to start with Mark. Because if we learn Mark, if we know Mark, then we can see what Matthew and Luke do with Mark. How they add to Mark, how they ignore Mark, how they change Mark all the sorts of things they do to make their own distinctive portraits of Jesus, and I'm doing a series on this over at Walsh this, uh, this semester on, Mark and, uh, on Luke and, Ma and, and Matthew, but they're all, all basically doing things with Mark. So we know Mark. We know three out of the four Gospels, basically. Um, John is another story, but we won't talk about that story today. So Mark is the beginning, literally. And in fact, that's how Mark begins. Mark's story begins with the words, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, of Jesus the Anointed One. The beginning. Well, what is the beginning of the good news? I guess we'd have to figure out what good news means uh, and what it means to call Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ. Um, let me start with uh, the Christ part. Let's just try to parse Mark's beginning here. And today we're only going to talk about the first 15 verses of Mark's Gospel which serves as a kind of prologue. It serves as a way of anticipating what the whole story is going to be like. So, Christ. What does Christ mean? Do we know? Messiah, Messiah right? It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed. So, someone who has been anointed with oil, which basically means appointed. So, Jesus, the appointed one. Well, appointed to do what? Well, in the Old Testament, if, um, if you're familiar with Catholic teaching, uh, we believe that through baptism we are um, appointed to a priestly, a prophetic, and a royal role. Three, three roles, three kinds of anointings. And those all come from the Old Testament. The Old Testament priests, prophets, and kings are anointed. But which one is Jesus in Mark? In Mark... And again, in our, in our developed tradition, we say Jesus is anointed as all three of these things. But Mark is only one piece of that puzzle. In Mark, Jesus' anointing, which is never, well, it might, ha it might happen in the course of the story. You might see him being anointed by someone, although the verb to anoint is not used there. Uh, there's a woman who pours oil over his head before his death, anointing his body for burial. That may be the anointing. We're not sure. But in any case, what is Jesus anointed as? What is he appointed as for Mark? He's basically appointed as a king. 
He is appointed to be a royal figure, to rule the world, or at least Israel, on God's behalf. That's what, uh, what, what the term anointed in the Old Testament means when you're referring to a king. Of course, Israel had but one king, God. So any human being stepping in the middle of this, uh, this relationship between God and his people could be potentially disruptive. Um, kings, of course, tend to be pretty bad people in the Old Testament. Just think of the Pharaoh. Just think of Solomon, who we think is wise, but was had, had some pretty big problems. Um, kings generally tend to be villains in the Bible. So how could how do you God's problem was how do you get how do I get how can I rule Israel through a human figure and why would I want to rule Israel through a human figure? Well, because part of my goal for humanity is that they will participate in my own life, and so whatever is part of my life, my being. I will share with them. And so in special ways, God shares his life with individual people. That's when the Holy Spirit gives us gifts, right? Apostle Paul says the Holy Spirit gives gifts, unique spiritual gifts to each person. Well, kingship is a gift. Anointing or appointing to kingship is a gift. So Jesus in Mark's gospel is presented as a king, a royal figure. But what about good news? Well, that actually fits very nicely. The term good news is almost always, both in the Bible, that is to say the Old Testament, as well as in pagan literature of the time, it almost always, not always, but almost, has to do with royalty, with royal figures, usually with the birth or the accession, that is to say the appointing of a monarch, of a king. And this happens in the Old Testament, where... um, uh, the good news is given to David that the previous king has died. And J- David says, well, that's not good news because he was my king. Um, but in any case, the assumption is that good news is when a new king is born or announced, when he begins to rule. This is the good news. It's the same way for the, the Greeks and the Romans. Just talk about the Romans here. There are two famous passages. One, an inscription by the emperor Caesar Augustus, who was a contemporary of Jesus' early life, um, who ended Rome's civil wars. Right? You know, you probably heard about Julius Caesar, right? Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, the daggers and all that kind of stuff. Well, Rome, uh, the, the empire, the Roman Empire, the whole Mediterranean world had been engulfed for more than a generation in, in bloodshed. And Caesar Augustus was the victor. He was the victor in these contests. And so in his own propaganda, which we have in lengthy inscriptions about all the great things I've done, the wonderful, wonderful things I've done, he says, um, uh, the good news of the birth of the God, that is to say the birth of Augustus, went forth uh, to all the world. Uh, The beginning of the good news was the the announcement of Augustus' birth. Even when he was born, people knew that he would save humanity and save the world from war by killing everyone. Uh, So that's one one crucial example where the term good news is used in the world in which Mark is writing. The other one is actually a bit more contemporary with Mark, uh, and that is in the year 70 AD, or actually the year 69 AD. Round about then. So about a generation after Jesus' death, a new emperor came to power. His name was Vespasian. And the great Jewish historian of these events, Josephus, uh, wrote that the, that the good news of Vespasian's accession, his seizure of power, spread like wildfire throughout 
the cities. People celebrated at, at this event. So good news is not just being happy. It's being happy about a change in power, a reordering of power in the world. And to celebrate the new king or the birth of a new king as good news is not just saying we're glad there's a new king. It's saying I'm declaring my allegiance to that person by celebrating, right? Uh, think of North Korea, right? When, when, the guy, when, when Kim died, everyone was forced to mourn. And if you didn't mourn, then you were targeted as an enemy of the state. That's sort of the reverse of good news, but it's the same principle. When a new power, when a new regime comes to power, you have to declare your allegiance pro or against. And if you accept it as good news, that means you're okay with it. So that's how the term good news was used in the world in which Mark was writing. When did Mark write? Um, well, we don't know for sure because we don't have any direct evidence, but uh, most scholars believe that he wrote around the year 70, where that new, that new regime came to power. And uh, I'll talk more about that as we go into the story of Mark, the Mark's story of Jesus, because, uh, because this new uh, this new power that was ruling the world was not a neutral power as far as Mark was concerned. Uh, it had claimed to have defeated the Jews, destroyed the temple of their God, uh, to, uh, to take the symbol of Jewish allegiance to the God of Israel, which is a, 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 a half-shekel coin that they would donate to the temple every year, and they forced the Jews to transfer that donation to the temple of Jupiter, uh, the, the chief god of Rome. So there was not a lot of good news if you were a worshiper of the god of Israel in the year 70. The whole world had collapsed. Every sign of God's sovereignty in the world, which we would call the kingdom of God, was not evident. It's at this moment when Jewish history is reeling from this catastrophe uh, that someone decides to put into writing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and he calls this good news, the good news of a new ruler, just as this new regime is coming to power. We'll talk more about that as we get along. Anyway, the gospel begins, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the one appointed to be king. Right after that, Mark continues, the good news began just as Isaiah, the prophet, said it would. The good news of Jesus Christ was just as Isaiah said it would be. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. Now, Isaiah, of course, is, one, is the biggest of the prophetic books of the Old Testament, 66 chapters long, big deal. Um, and Mark proceeds to quote from what he calls Isaiah, actually, he quotes a little more than Isaiah. He quotes some other prophetic texts as well. But let's hear what Mark has to say. According to Mark, the beginning of the good news of Jesus is as follows. I am sending my messenger before you to prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. That's Mark's gospel. That's what the good news of Jesus is. Now, we have to figure out what he's talking about here. Um, have, I mean, everyone see Star Wars, one of the Star Wars movies? Probably some of you have heard of it. 
at the beginning of every Star Wars movie, there's this sort of you know flourish, you know, bam, and then words go across the screen, which gives you the story. It tells you what the story is going to be about. The first three verses of Mark are essentially those words going across the star field in Star Wars. Before the story starts, he tells us what the story is going to be about. The story is going to be about someone sending a messenger before someone else to prepare his way. Which way? The way of the Lord. To prepare this way, to make his paths straight. And this person who's going to prepare him is going to be crying out in the wilderness. Okay, so where does all this imagery come from? This is the soundtrack of Mark's gospel. The soundtrack. If we know what the soundtrack is, I mean, if we heard Star Wars, the, the soundtrack, we'd know we were listening to Star Wars. The same thing here for Mark. If we know these scriptures that he's quoting, then we'll understand, or at least we'll, we'll know what ballpark we're supposed to be in as we read this story, this first account of Jesus' life. So let's break this down. I'm sending my messenger before you to prepare your way. That does not actually come from Isaiah. It comes uh, in one way or another from two other Old Testament texts. The first passage from the Old Testament that is, that is the inspiration for this appears to be Exodus 23, tw uh, Exodus 23, 20, chapter 23, verse 20. This, um, and in all of these, these passages, by the way, God is the speaker. So when it says, I'm sending my messenger before you, it's God is sending someone before someone else to do something. Which makes sense because we just heard that the main character in the story, Jesus, is going to be appointed to do something. So here's what his task is. So in, this, uh, in the book of Exodus, they go, Moses goes up to the mountain, right? And he gets the Ten Commandments. But it gets a lot more than that, too, right? It doesn't end in Exodus 20. It keeps going on for a long time. Exodus 21 to 23, those three chapters are referred to as the covenant code by modern scholars. The covenant code, they are basically God's own interpretation of the Ten Commandments. This is how you should apply the Ten Commandments to the society that you are going to form when you reach the promised land. And at the end of this collection of case laws, uh, God then tells Moses to tell the people of Israel, I'm sending my messenger before you, in front of you, to guard you on your way to the place that I prepared for you. Listen to him. Um, if you listen to him, if you obey my commandments, when you get to the promised land, he will fight for you. He will make war on your enemies. He will overcome and triumph over your enemies because my name is in him. So the basic scenario, God appoints a messenger to lead Israel, the nation of Israel, on a journey through a wilderness, right, from Mount Sinai to the promised land and to conquer the, that promised land. So this is a warrior. Now, what is being referred to? Very likely in, in its original context, this is referring to that pillar of fire that keeps following the Israelites around. We can't shake it off. It keeps following us um, or maybe leading us. This appears to be the, uh, what's referred to as my messenger. Um, the word messenger in Greek is the same word for angel, too. So we can speak of messengers as divine beings as well as human beings. But the role of the messenger can be assumed by both human and non-human characters in the Bible. So God is sending someone to guard Israel on a journey to get to the land and to conquer that land. 
That's the first part of our soundtrack. So let's bracket that aside for a moment. The other Old Testament passage where that sending someone before me to prepare a way comes from is from the prophet Malachi. Malachi, which is the last book in our Old Testament, the last book in the collection of the prophets. Uh, and in that book, which is um, it's, a, it's a message of warning, uh, especially to the priests of Israel, to the priesthood of the temple in Jerusalem, a warning to them to offer correct sacrifices, uh, to teach Israel the Torah. It's a warning to them because they're not doing the job, and it's also a warning to the people of Israel that they're not obeying the covenant. So God says, I'm sending my messenger before me, and he will come suddenly into my temple. And when he comes, he will purify, he will refine the priests. He will, he will, he will cleanse the form of worship so that it, is, it, it resumes its proper role. And he will also establish justice. Uh, so eventually, but it's really focused on reforming the temple, reforming the priests. Uh, it doesn't say who or what this messenger is. The messenger of the covenant, says God in another verse there. But it's sort of a mystery man or a mystery angel, perhaps. So these two passages, I'll send, I'm sending my messenger before you, Israel, to guard you on your journey to the promised land. Or I'm sending my messenger before me to get to the center of the promised land, namely Jerusalem, namely the temple, so that he can cleanse the temple and its personnel of their uh, deviations from my will. That's the first word Mark says about what his story is about. Now, guess what the climax of Mark's story is? A climax isn't the conclusion of a plot. It's, it's the event that determines the outcome. So the outcome is that Jesus dies and is raised. What causes him to be killed? Does anyone know what causes Jesus to be killed? Because he does something. What does he do that causes him to be killed? Speaks out against the sin eater. Okay, he speaks out against uh, the, the, the temple leaders, right? Yeah. Because he did something in the temple, right? They're, they're, they're having him here because he did something in the temple. Um, he does something disruptive to the temple. Uh, and that's what gets him killed. Not so in John's gospel. In John's gospel, he doesn't get killed for anything he does in the temple. He gets killed for raising a person from the dead. Two very different interpretations of why Jesus was killed. But uh, for us... The temple is the climax of Mark's story. He communicates that from the very beginning by throwing at us this, this allusion, this, this, this uh, bar from the soundtrack of Malachi, also perhaps referring to the Exodus. I'm sending my messenger to lead my people through a wilderness to get to the promised land, and when they get there, he's going to go to the temple and reform the temple priesthood. That's his job. That's what I've appointed him to do. Okay, but the second half of that Plot summary. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make, uh, uh, make, make ready the, or prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That does come from Isaiah. So let's figure out what the, what the scenario of those words is. What soundtrack does that belong to? Well, this comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. This is the beginning of the middle part of Isaiah. Isaiah has three parts each written at a different period in history by a different author or set of authors. This middle part we call Second Isaiah, and it stretches from chapter 40 to chapter 55. It's the longest single sermon, if you will, in the Old Testament. It's a one-issue document. 
So Mark quotes the very beginning of this document, which begins by saying, comfort, comfort my people. Tell my people things will go well for them because I have put an end to their exile in Babylon. So this is a story about the Israelites in Babylon, the Jews in Babylon in exile, understood punished for their sins, uh, for breaking their covenant. God has said, the punishment's all over, folks. I'm bringing you home. It's an uplifting message. Now, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, is a herald, someone who's announcing that not only is God bringing the Jews back, but God is literally leading the Jews through a wilderness to the promised land. And to help him along the way, because God is God and he is the the sovereign of all the universe, you have to build a royal highway for him to travel on. You know, it's just like, you know, when when the Corps of Engineers builds a transcontinental highway, you dynamite the hills, you fill in the valleys to make a nice, clean-cut road to show how powerful the sovereign is. He even can control the shape of the earth itself. That's how strong he is. Uh, He marches on his own red carpet, as it were, through this wilderness. Now, the reference to wilderness is significant. Yes, there was a desert between Babylon and Iraq and uh, the land of Israel, but that's not the point. He's not trying to be, make a realistic description of their itinerary. Uh, this is an, an, a, a recalling of an earlier soundtrack, the soundtrack of the Exodus. Right? How did Israel come to be as a people? Well, God liberated them from a king from another ruler, from another kingdom. He defeated that ruler in battle at the sea, at which moment the Israelites owned God as their king. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. They conclude the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15. So that is what we call the kingdom of God, the kingship of God, the sovereignty of God is first made manifest to the world in the Exodus. And the way he demonstrates it is not just by defeating his enemies, but by leading his people safely through a wilderness to the land that he has promised to their forefathers. Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio presents. Local programming heard on Living Bread Radio is brought to you through the generosity of our listeners. To help support the mission of the Living Bread Radio Network and all of our local programming, call us at 888-966-2903 and make a pledge today. No gift is too small and your pledge may be tax deductible. That's 888-966-2903. 2903 or use our safe and secure website at livingbreadradio.com.